Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, James Scher. He is a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security, a veteran Russia watcher, and a rather prolific Facebook poster, whose comments I always quite appreciate to see the latest analysis that he has to offer on developments both in the U.S.-Russian relationship and the relationship between Europe and Moscow. And that's the reason I brought James on this week. I think it's fair to say, James, wouldn't you, that many members of our intellectual and dare I even say moral persuasion were put quite out of joint by the Biden administration's moves on Nord Stream 2, having campaigned very wholeheartedly against the construction or the completion of the gas pipeline, controversial gas pipeline. It now seems that he's caved, whether in some as yet to be told deal, backroom deal with the Russians, but probably more likely a desire to appease Angela Merkel and the the German establishment, basically put pressure on the Ukrainian government. Please keep your mouth shut. Don't raise any fuss about Nord Stream 2. This is going forward. It's 98% complete. And James, you wrote a very good piece about the Putin-Biden summit last month, and I quite like your takeaway, which I'm going to, without putting words in your mouth, I'm going to leave it to you to surmise. But let's start first with the more recent development of this sort of surprise position, policy position coming out of Washington. There seemed to be bipartisan consensus for a long time. Nord Stream 2 was a bad thing, and the United States should be opposed to it. Why all of a sudden the the buckling? Well... Americans know on Monday what Europeans learn on Friday, and it's a very basic thing, that any administration has inside it a range of voices, hopefully not a cacophony of voices, but a spectrum of voices. And um, somehow everyone presumed that the Biden administration was going to be more unified than it has turned out to be. So before one even speaks about the strategic calculations behind this change of Nord Stream, there was, as an American audience will appreciate, a real argument and difference of view between different elements of the administration here. And my understanding, and I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm on my own, is that the National Security Council, which some very strong Europe-minded advisors prevailed over the opinion of the State Department. But it is a surprise and we are where we are. Now, there is a point which I think the a basic point which I think the administration has lost as far as Europe is concerned. Biden, for understandable reasons, has attached a very high priority to healing the rift with Europe that Trump did his best to create and then aggravate. In the process, he has forgotten to ask the question, which Europe. And paradoxically, this decision uh, to withdraw sanctions and go ahead with this and work together with the Germans over actually bringing Nord Stream 2 to fruition has deepened divisions in Europe itself. Right. It's had the paradoxical effect of strengthening those interests with a vested stake, who have long had a vested stake in deeper cooperation with Russia, and frustrating, disheartening, confusing, and even embittering the most transatlantic elements in Europe who are looking forward to Biden strengthening Atlanticism against the common adversary, Russia. Biden has missed that telling distinction. 
there's a, a long process of sucking teeth over here in Europe and trying to figure out w- where we are. Secondly, in doing so, he has taken one or two other steps which are totally gratuitous and unnecessary. Why has the administration endorsed the Minsk process in Ukraine? Even the Obama administration didn't quite do that. It mended fences over Minsk when this whole Franco-German setup was devised after those devastating Russian offensives in Ukraine in late 2014, early 2015. The United States was completely cold-shouldered and left outside this loop. The Obama administration, which unlike Biden's is the administration of the US-Russia reset, Right. Uh, and seen generally as much uh, softer and more equivocal about the Russia problem than Biden was meant to be. They insisted on setting up a bilateral U.S.-Russia channel on the Ukraine conflict. Now, although there has been talk of this, the Biden administration has not done that. So you put all this together and it creates an impression before we even consider Ukrainian views that this president, who is known for having a strong moral, personal commitment to Ukraine, even the Russians saying, rinsing themselves, that Ukraine is a matter of deep personal importance to Joseph Biden, that Ukraine in all of this has emerged as a secondary priority. And so, you know, that leads into a bigger question of what it is exactly that Biden is trying to do with Russia, what he thinks he can do with Russia. I've had it from various sources, I, I would say, in the administration, on the periphery of the administration, who tend to share our point of view, but also have been frustrated by what they're seeing play out. The Kremlinology, for lack of a better term, is as follows. On the National Security Council in particular, There's a a very outspoken contingent of people who argue with plenty of justification that, look, you know, China is the rising superpower and the real strategic challenge for the United States and will be for the next quarter century. Russia is a nuisance, an outsized nuisance, to be sure, whether it be in waging an undeclared dirty war in Donbass or cyber warfare or cyber espionage operations, which are ongoing. Let's, let's put Russia in a box. Let's you know, sort of give them a little bit of what they want uh, in exchange for warning them that should they continue to behave in the manner with which they have been behaving the last half decade, we can do great harm to them, both economically and on the level of intelligence. But China is the focus, uh, whether you look at the American defense doctrine, it's, it's number one. And you know, even now with the subsiding of the so-called war on terror, the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan, the imminent withdrawal of American forces from Iraq, the containment of the ISIS problem, which had predominated in the last several years, there's a, a desire to move past this Russia issue. I think also within democratic circles, especially, meaning large D democratic, partisan, yeah, party political democratic circles. The focus that had been paid to Russia with diminishing returns, uh, and I'm talking, of course, of the Mueller investigation, allegations, both coming from political stakeholders and, of course, the media in the United States, that Donald Trump was perhaps a Manchurian candidate or some kind of asset of the Kremlin. None of these things seem to have the impact, the desired impact 
when pursued as a kind of ideological cudgel. And I think, frankly, there's just a sense of exhaustion that we focus too much on the Russia question in this country. And so whilst you don't have Reset 2.0 as promised on the campaign trail, there is a kind of weird hybridized realist doctrine that now governs the relationship. Don't stop hacking into energy infrastructure, stop you know, waging cyber influence operations against our elections and you know, so on and so forth. And we'll let you have your your 98% baked cookie and eat it too, this kind of thing. So th- I don't know if, if, if this is sort of the spin that's been presented to me, or this is a kind of fair pricey of, you know, the internal administration thinking on it. But it does seem to be that, you know, Russia is simply not the priority that we were led to believe it was going to be. Michael, I think that's a fair assessment to some degree of taking the words out of my mouth, but it's also straight out of the Obama mm-hmm. playbook. Uh, one thing that seems to be overlooked here is, uh, before we get on to the main thing which is overlooked, the small thing that's overlooked is what conclusions does China draw if it perceives the United States is in, in, in a number of ways inhibited from uh, really standing up to Russia? The impression of weakness in one area does not make you look stronger in another area. This is common sense. International politics involves struggles of interest and power, but it also is it, it's also theater. And it is apart from that, it is also, as the Russians understand very well and in very rigorous terms, it is about conviction, will, and inner strength. When Putin went into Ukraine in 2014, he understood, it was understood there by the defense and security establishment that, of course, the West is going to pound the table and react and do unpleasant things, and we're going to have to make sacrifices, and it's going to be very unpleasant. But they are going to get exhausted, and we're not, because they do not have the tenacity, because Ukraine cannot mean to them what it means to us. Right. They are over there. We are on Ukraine's borders. We are not going away. We will always be here. Ukraine is an extension of our homeland and so on and so forth. And they will not be able to keep this up. Well, we've kept it up longer than I think anyone could have assumed. Mm. But the logic of this way of thinking is still there. Add to that that the circles around Putin well are drawing upon the Russian instinct for what they call which is not just a willingness to make sacrifice, but a pride in making sacrifices and paying a cost for things uh, you believe. And this, in their eyes, is what makes them stronger. Is what it, it, These are eternal strengths of Russia. And these things are not measured primarily by GDP or by a level of technology, important as all these things are. These so-called moral and civilizational qualities of enormous importance. I think they're enormous importance objectively, but they're particularly important to the Russians and they're important to the Chinese as well. The whole mentality, the assumptions that underpin all these arguments that take place in Washington, leave all of this out. Certainly in the post-Cold War environment, and it doesn't just affect Russia policy, I think it affects all manner of policy. I mean, I, you know, I work for a publication that deals in affairs of the Arab world almost exclusively. And with the latest events in Tunisia, 
in effect a coup, you know, we, we've sort of had a, a reassessment of the last 10 years. It was the Arab Spring worth it? And whether the idea that democracy can actually evolve and take hold in, in this part of the world. I mean, it, it, we've come in for some, some quite um, severe and, and um, harsh reassessments and reappraisals of our own thinking. But what you say, and what I, what I take away from this, and I agree with you, is you know, the belief that other people in other countries from other regions of the world do things fundamentally differently has become anathema in our sort of postmodern framework of understanding the way things are meant to be. 1989 was, not to caricature Frank Fukuyama, but for many people was the end of history and the inevitablest you know, march of liberal democracy and, and market capitalism would, could be unimpeded. And simply our values would do the work for us. All we had to do was mouth some of the catechisms and platitudes of the buildup of that up until that point and history would sort of fall into place. And of course it hasn't done. And we've seen the recrudescence of authoritarian regimes. We've seen even more dangerously, the seductiveness of these regimes, which are not totalitarian in the way they were in the 20th century, but sort of take these sort of hybridized or liquid models, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, you know, you can go abroad in contemporary Russia. In fact, you should stay there if you plan to kick up a fuss in terms of politics or civil society. You can make a lot of money, you can spend it in London, you can spend it in New York. You know, the idea that the freedoms that we had promulgated and, and firmly believed in, that everybody is going to share in these assumptions, is simply not the case. But this is not new. It never has yeah. been. The United States in particular, the UK to an extent, it's a, it's a sort of Anglo-Saxon vice, is handicapped by this difficulty of accepting that in this world, there are other belief systems, that there are fundamentally different outlooks, that people can be very rational by their own lights in ways that are, that are deeply different from your own. And if you want to accomplish anything, as in war, you have to begin by taking the enemy into account and understanding how he thinks. I think one of the problems, that the attitudinal problems that gets in the way of this understanding is a belief that the Russians also would like to see an improvement in relations. The Russians do not care. The Russians believe they are an adversary. They believe they have principled reasons to be an adversary of the so-called, of what they describe as the collective West. What they demand from the collective West is respect and understanding of what Russia's interests are. Now, none of this means we, that we cannot challenge these interests, so we are entitled to have our own interests, and there's no reason for us to apologize in any way for our value system at all. But we have to be adult and understand who we are dealing with and what matters to them. You know, Biden says in the, in the sort of the, the summit forum, he refers to Russia as a great power, which, as you noted in your column, was in marked distinction from what Obama had said, which is that they're a, what was it, a regional power that punches above its weight or something along those lines. So to that extent, is, is referring to Russia as a great power a way of paying respect to the adversary, meeting them on their own playing field or whatever, whatever it is that they seek? Or is it a it's capitulation? It was an infelicitous way of paying respect. Mm -hmm. Because what Biden means, where he comes from, when he talks about being a great power, he means we have a great responsibility. We have a great responsibility for world order, for peace in the world, for all these things. And he's saying, that Putin, again, you're like us, you see, because you're a great power, you think this way. 
when any Russian thinks about Russia being a great power, what that means to them is we have prerogatives. Uh, we certainly are not equal with lesser powers, and lesser powers have a responsibility in dealing with us. And um, we are not on the same, we are not on a level playing field at all. Now, this has been the fundamental issue in Europe, because for whatever set of reasons, Gorbachev himself, towards the end of the Cold War, signed up to a whole framework of European security based ultimately on the UN Charter, but on the Helsinki Accords that premised on the sovereign equality of states, great and small states. In many ways, you see, the Russians did this with Ukraine because they felt, well, we could sign up to all of this because Ukraine's independence is going to amount to nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, they were greatly surprised and greatly surprised that Ukraine would not define its independence the way Russia wanted it to. I mean, what these terms mean very different things to the Russians. So it's restated today, most recently by Putin. Uh, we have no objection to Ukraine being independent and sovereign, but it has to define its independence and sovereignty in cooperation with Russia. It is Russia as a great power and as the center of this organically entwined civilization of the former empire that naturally has the prerogative of deciding what Ukraine's independence means and what it doesn't mean. Breaking this code, this way of thinking, I think is, is except, not only exceptionally difficult, it might be impossible, but what is possible is to prevent them from having their way. Where I think the issue of respect does become a problem and where the Russians do have a legitimate grievance is with our myopic obsession about their internal affairs. They have a very old-fashioned view about this. Russia's internal affairs are part of Russia's jurisdiction. And so much of what we object to now in Europe is that the Russians see it just repaying us in their own in our own coin, supporting the separatists in Catalonia, giving moral, political, and financial support to Marine Le Pen, to parties of the far right and right. parties of the far left, far left, working with all the non-systemic oppositional players in Europe. They see it, you do this to us, so we're going to do it to you. You want to muck around in our world and our legitimate space, we can muck around in Venezuela. If they were more powerful, they'd do more of it. And for them, you know, the results, what's happening in Europe, it's a kind of schadenfreude. I know one case, I won't mention names, where the Western foreign minister rang informally, rang Sergei Lavrov to say to him, I think you really misunderstand why human rights in Russia matter so much to us. And Lavrov, this is not rehearsed, he exploded for 20 minutes in expletives. He said, you know, you effing well, stop effing well talking to us about our internal affairs, damn you. It's all well and good, and, and I, I, I don't doubt Mr. Lavrov's sincerity and his uh, expletive-laden diatribe there, but you know, let's say tomorrow the United States decided to disband the National Endowment for Democracy, to silence any and all State Department communication about the deterioration of human rights in Russia, or even, even if we want to go further than that and say what Russia defines as its quote-unquote near abroad, we're going to keep mum about that would not stop Kremlin state media apparatuses from railing against civic unrest in the United States, 
condemning, you know, Black Lives Matters on the one hand. Uh, no, I fully understand. We yeah. don't have to do that and we shouldn't do it. Right. They're not looking for parity in the relationship. They're looking for to, capitulation. We need to recognize what we're dealing with and where you can have a constructive discussion and where you cannot. That's all I would oppose what you're describing as, as much as you do. But we need to understand that whatever happens inside Russia, the real issue for us, which not only liberal Democrats will see as legitimate, but which has a claim to legitimacy in the world and as a principle of international order, is that if what goes on in Russia is Russia's business, what goes on inside Ukraine is not Russia's business. Right. These issues are two different magnitudes of importance, and they are categorically different, and they shouldn't be lumped together. And we have often lumped them together. And so in addition to dealing with a very well-founded historical conflict of interests and values, we then end up burdening that and making it worse by dealing with things that are extremely emotional to the other side and being surprised that when it all blows up in our face. And there's another issue here, you know, which, which argues for caution. It was brought home when Donald Rumsfeld, as Secretary of Defense, uh, went on one of his visits to Russia, and he said the usual things about human rights. And then he flew to Baku and Azerbaijan and praised them as a model democracy. <laughs> right. Now, inevitably, double standards arise. The United States has had allies over decades for compelling reasons at times, whose internal order is despotic. Yeah. If you're talking about the acceptability of a system of governance, however much you will fault Russia for things that are taking place, when you compare it to the world as a whole, Russia's political system, its way of life, its scope for freedom of various kinds, economic, intellectual, and all the rest of it, is very much above the average of what we see in the world as a whole. And so naturally the Russians say, well, you're only raising these issues here because for geopolitical reasons, you're trying to weaken and fragment Russia. Now, it's not so difficult proof, you know, to prove them, oh no, that's not the case. Right. Um, when we don't raise these issues in Saudi Arabia, some other places we can work. But again, it comes back to the issue of how do you deal with Russia if you want to accomplish something? Even when you can't accomplish something, how do you get them to understand what it is we're really doing and why we're doing it? If a decision were taken tomorrow in Moscow that, you know, the United States, let's say that they, they put their money where their mouth is and, and they actually themselves abandon the, the so-called Cold War mentality of thinking of the United States as the main adversary, and they really were seeking a stable, predictable, and fruitful partnership with Washington. It would be a, a very extreme form of trust but verify for a long time, given the history. But if the Russians were kept to their word and, and stopped mucking about, whether it's in election interference or cyber operations and the rest of it, they did whatever they wanted to do internally. I reckon after a while, just from a purely realpolitik point of view, the United States would begin to treat Russia as it does Saudi Arabia, as it did and continues to do uh, countries such as Egypt. It's no longer a superpower and it's authoritarian, 
in its mode of governance. But as you pointed out, it does a bit better than a lot of other countries we transact with and even call our allies. It would lead to a, a readjustment in, in America's sort of, I guess the term of art is values-led foreign policy with respect to Moscow, wouldn't it? They, if they really wanted to hoist us on our own petard, they could essentially expose the double standards that they claim to loathe by behaving a little bit better and seeing us reciprocate in turn. There's a lesser problem than there's the big problem. Yeah. It is absolutely right that the United States and the West make it publicly clear that our values are inseparable from our interests and from who we are. Mm-hmm. That Russia is an authoritarian state. It has a different set of values and, and, and so on. As long as our basic outlook and system of norms are differ in this way, we're never going to have cordial, intimate relations. So this is not an apologetic stance at all. And it goes along with a lot of other things, like making it very easy for Russians to come here, doing everything possible to expand humanitarian contacts by refusing to regard Russian civil society as off limits. The bigger issue is this. At the end of the Cold War, I have no doubt that uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin very much wanted a close relationship with the West, and even as they understood it, a form of integration with the West. But what they understood in all of this is that we are still going to be Russia, and being Russia means that we have a rightful interest, a right to a preeminence, even a soft preeminence in our so-called near abroad, Mm. whatever those people think about it, that the proper place to discuss the issue of Ukraine is Moscow, not Kiev. When the West began to develop relations with Ukraine, Georgia, as truly independent places, independent of Moscow on bilateral channels without consulting and asking Russia's permission, this was seen in Russia as an insult and indignity. Now, that is something they have to live with. This is why the relationship went sour. The process started in the early 90s. The relationship, certainly between the United States and Russia, was in many respects acrimonious. There was, a, of course, typically naive expectation on the basis of certain things that he said at the beginning, that Putin was going to make things better. There were very few, I think I was one of very few, I certainly wasn't the only one, who, you know, back in 91, 92 said, the near abroad is going to be the big issue. And if we don't understand it, we are not able to communicate our interests there effectively. Well, then what, uh, what in your view, should have been done in the early 90s to kind of mollify this acrimoniousness that it developed? Where did we go wrong? Yeah, on the one hand, you say we, we should be unapologetic about a values-based or values-led foreign policy, yeah. which is to say, Kiev is the capital of Ukraine. Therefore, if we want to discuss Ukraine, we're going to go to Kiev, not Moscow, and you know, Blisi for Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, doing that upsets this apple cart of, of the kind of cultural DNA, uh, I suppose, of you know, sort of how Russia sees itself and uh, sees its own role in the world, particularly in its own neighborhood. So where, where should the United States have, I don't know, compromised? Where should it have stood its ground? If you, if you were given a revisionist historian pen, which I suppose we all have to some degree, what would you rewrite? Well, I think it would have been helpful had we judged the moment 
beyond which our involvement in Russia's internal reforms had ceased to be welcome. Let's be perfectly fair to the people who were making policy in the West at that time. One reason we were so deeply involved in Russia's internal affairs is the people who came to power after the Soviet Union collapsed asked us to be, because they saw West, Western institutions and Western modernity and all the rest of it as something they aspired to, and they wanted us to come and help them. First, we should have understood that this is not going to have the effects inside Russia that we want, and we better be careful, because when things go wrong there, and they will, and when people suffer there and there's no answer to them, the lo and behold, the West is going to be blamed, and we will be accused of having done this deliberately to weaken Russia. And there was no awareness of this. And Putin was the representative of these forces, not the worst representative, one of the most disciplined and intelligent representatives of these forces of a Russian reassertion of pride was able to say. Yeltsin actually started it. So the West wants to reduce Russia to paralysis. The West has no interest in a strong Russia. We should have not done what Americans love doing, which is personifying politics and making all this about Yeltsin. It's not just Americans. I had a long conversation with Margaret Thatcher, where she began by asking me why I disagree with her about Yeltsin. I said, I don't disagree with you about Yeltsin. I disagree with you about Russia. <laughs> right. And the distinction was difficult to make. We did not have any relationships, communications channels with people outside this bubble that we were talking to all the time. And this made a reaction inevitable. The people I used to work with in the 90s, the institute I was involved in then, we used to talk about Weimar Russia. I think whatever we did, we didn't do. I mean, you know, and, and you go back and you look at, and this is what I find fascinating about revisiting this, this period in history. I mean, some of the historians that I've always enjoyed reading about, not just Russia in the 20th century, but going back much further than that, Tibor Zemwelli, Ronald Hingley, Bob Conquest, they all shared the same fundamental appraisal, which is, look, you're going to have moments of liberalization, but they are always inevitably followed by moments of repression. This history is that of a sine curve, and that's not to rule out or to be so teleologically wedded to the idea that Russia can evolve and one day move into a more Western-friendly orientation, but get don't get your hopes up. And it's certainly not going to happen overnight just because the wall came down in Berlin. Yeah, I mean, I, I think going back and rereading a lot of the gaga-eyed expectations of that 89 to 91 period, it was the conservative historians, all of them cold warriors, by the way, who understood Russia as a threat and as, as an adversary. Conservatives of the old-fashioned kind understand there are real differences. The reason that Estonia is unrecognizable, even three years after the end of the Cold War became almost unrecognizable compared to what it had been, is because in Estonia, certainly in many, most other countries of what we now call Central Europe, had a totally different history. Estonia is an atheist country with a Lutheran ethos. The civic ethos, there is the heritage of the middle class of self-reliance, all of Europe at different intensity had, most of it, experienced first the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment. All of these things came from Western and Central Europe, not from Russia. Right. Russia has had a very different history. But you see, this is where the problem of Ukraine arises. Spent an enormous amount of time in Ukraine. I, I knew from the moment I landed there. This is not Russia because a large part of this country going back many centuries has been part of European history, deeply influenced by Europe and European ideas. 
and for all sorts of reasons, has a, a political culture based on, on, on pluralism, with all its flaws, its untidiness, its mess, its bardak, and the rest of it. The Russians don't understand Ukraine in this way. They think we know Ukraine better than anybody else and certainly don't want to ask a Ukrainian about it because they don't know anything. They can't mm. do anything. To speak in academic terms, this is what Ukraine makes Ukraine very interesting. There is, with all the other things going on, the, the imperial Russian heritage, the Soviet heritage, the, mm. um, the unspeakable savagery of the, the history that took place, there, the bloodlands, as uh, Timothy Snyder describes it. Yeah. Uh, there is always, it, it is part of European civilization, as we understand it. The Russians will not see this as a matter of principle for all sorts of reasons. But your, your analysis it provides the justification yeah. for why the United States and the European Union should be wedded to Ukraine and to its the success of its kind of political development and economic development because it is a natural ally of the West. My point is very is also a very practical one. Because the Russians don't understand this, there has been one explosion there after another. You've had these these two Maidan events, the yeah. Orange Revolution and then the so-called Revolution of Dignity. By the way, not not so well predicted by the West either, but not expected by the Russians at all. Not predicted. And as soon as these things happen, what is their explanation? The West did it. U.S. special operation. Okay. Uh, and putting neo-Nazis in power. And by the way, if you go back to the 19th century, when all this was going on, the standard imperial Russian response to what they called Ukrainian nationalism, Ukrainian national consciousness was Polish intrigue. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, nothing, nothing really changes. One of the most worrying features of about Russia, in my view, is that throughout its history, Russia has always incorporated the history and the identities of other people into their own. This is uh, imperialism of a very different kind from what is understood in, in Britain or France or West Africa or East Africa or India. When Yeltsin was trying to make things better with Ukrainians, he made things worse. Why? Because he kept saying, we're, as Putin does, we're the same people. We love you. <laughs> uh, we love you, we love you, but but you're inferior and you need we have a common we have a common history. Ukrainians wanted to hear the Russians say, we also respect that you have your own history, right. that we have our differences. And and you know, the this sort of view that if we deprioritize Russia and treat it as a sort of moderate, minor to moderate nuisance and focus more on the strategic priorities that we have set ourselves, things will be okay or will attain some measure of equilibrium, also fails to take into account developments outside of the Russian sphere in which Russia can play a very meddlesome, if not decisive role. I mean, again, one thinks of we, the Arab Spring and we saw what happened in Syria with their intervention in 2015. As with the Taliban now. As with the Taliban now, exactly. No one would credit Mike Tyson with being a great foreign policy thinker, but one of his, his maxims is <laughs> everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And if yeah. the last 10 years has shown anything, uh, our plan with Russia was met with successive batterings, not just to the face, but to the solar plexus and all, all parts of the body. So the British military axiom is that uh, the best plan falls apart at first contact with the enemy. Exactly. Exactly. You would think, though, I mean, this is and this is, I guess, my frustration, but also I have no answer to this question. Being so surprised and, and having all these expectations upended time and time again, where is this kind of sober 
recalculation. Where are the new mandarins to understand 21st century Russia? You know, Mike McFall referred to a short bench at the tail end of the Obama administration because all of these guys had simply retired. The Cold War was over and now it was the global war on terror that we are focused on killing you know, bad guys in the desert with drones. But where are the new thinkers to really understand the kind of guts of this problem? Present company excluded, of course. I mean, you were, you know- I'm not new anymore. You're not new anymore. And, and, and that, of course, you know, one knows and has worked with, even at the privilege of teaching, many younger people who have this potential. But I do see a gap. And it is a real worry. It's a gap. And by the way, the gap, it's a whole other subject. It's a gap is made worse by the educational system, which is now the university educational system, Mm. which does not value serious study of the kind of issues that we have been discussing, beginning with history and culture and, and various parts of history and diplomatic history. Very few people now have any kind of historical memory. The institutions we look to, to look after our national security, conduct national security policy, they too lack institutional memory. And in part, this is due to the way people are are educated today. Um, My favorite quotation from Joseph de Mestre, who of course was an anti-enlightenment thinker, but it's very relevant here. And he said, we do not invent ourselves. When you're dealing with serious players like Russia, these overly adult people. Rhetoric doesn't impress them. They immediately want to see that it's backed by action. There's a whole political culture there. Mm. What Lenin called the unity of words, organization and action. Biden says, we're right behind Ukraine. We fully support Ukraine's territorial integrity and uh, independence and so on. Fine, what are you actually prepared to do about it? Is the United States, if we get to this point, and I, I, I don't think we inevitably are, we get to this point where Russia confronts Ukraine with this apocalyptic challenge, is the United States and its allies prepared to quietly witness the destruction of this state, the destruction of any European state? Wouldn't it even be helpful to say we're not prepared to witness that? It's not been said. But the question is, what are you doing to prepare for this contingency? What are you doing about it? What are we prepared to do and what are we not prepared to do? And if we're not prepared to do something, we shouldn't adopt a discourse, a public discourse that suggests we are. Right. The worst thing in the world when you're dealing with people like Putin and Xi Jinping, the most dangerous thing you can do is bluff. And I worry sometimes that when we bluff, we don't even know we're bluffing. It's the equivalent of a, you know, a person who is, has an amputated limb, but feels it as sort of a phantom appendage. You know, we, we feel our prominence in the world and our ability to, to sort of move nation states and conduct kind of geopolitical strategic policy by the, the force of our word and, and the belief in, the, in the, that that word is, is backed by material commitment, even though such things don't really exist any longer. I would, I would prefer people kept their mouths well, shut. That's the illusion we need to lose. Yeah. Our, you know, when Georgia was attacked, South Ossetia and Abkhazia were detached. Uh, what was Dick Cheney's response? This will not stand. And my response to that was, oh, yeah. 
what are you going to do about it? What are you what are you prepared? To, and how do you signal this before? When Obama was in power, not for the first time, in the middle of a highly advertised, well-advertised NATO exercise, the Russians moved the South Ossetian border one and a half kilometers further into Georgian territory. What was the consequence? The NATO exercise ended on schedule. Well, you don't end it on schedule if you want to send a message. Right. You extend it. You make a fuss about it. And you say, we are now going to consult with our Georgian partners about where we go from here, how we respond, how we strengthen Georgia's security. The Russians would have heard that message and they would have seen something there. Mm. But because the exercise ended on schedule, because it was a schedule, they got another message. And they might think our words are the worst thing possible. And it's not inconceivable is that where the balance of military forces doesn't favor us, as it doesn't in the Baltic region, they will think, well, these words don't matter there either. There's nothing behind them. Yeah. So we have a real responsibility to connect words, means, action. There's got to be a concurrence between these three things. So I want to thank you, James, uh, for coming on the program, and we must have you back soon. This is Michael Weiss. You've been listening to Foreign Office. See you next time.